Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today, we're going to talk about overcoming fear. Fear is universal, primal, powerful, and it's an adaptive emotion, which is triggered by perceived danger or threat, whether that's physical or psychological. I don't care who you are, we all feel fear. And courage is not never having fears, but it's about overcoming them when they come up. Fears can help us survive and thrive, but in some instances, fear can take hold of us where there isn't a real emergency and instead cause us to self-sabotage, not achieve our goals, and lead us to retreat from the life we say we want to live. And I think this is such an important topic, especially right now. Fear abounds everywhere we look, from fear of illness with COVID-19 to fear of our current political climate in our microcosm, to the fears that each of us struggle with individually in our day-to-day -day lives. Fear is increasing no matter where you look, and we need to get a handle on this right now. No doubt we all feel fear, and we're going to conquer it together, and I have just the person we should talk to on the best tips to overcome whatever fears you're currently battling in your life. You guys, I can feel an adrenaline rush just thinking about my wonderful guest today. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Nick Walenda. He is an acrobat, aerialist, and daredevil, also known as King of the High Wire. Nick is a seventh generation member of the famous Flying Walenda's family, and he started performing at 13 years old, but he actually started with acrobats work at the age of two, I think. So you have probably seen him performing high wire stunts on TV. He has broken ratings and records with his terrifying walks above the Grand Canyon, over Niagara Falls, and even in New York City. He currently holds 11 Guinness Book of World Records, doing all sorts of incredible things that most humans can't comprehend or fathom. He's performed all over the world, and now this amazing man can add author to his list of accomplishments with his new book, Facing Fear. So welcome, Nick. It's such a pleasure to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, your book is so timely. I want to get all the details because I had the pleasure of reading an advanced copy and I just loved it. But I want to start by talking about the Guinness Book of World Records. It always amazes me all the different kinds of records that people can break. Your records are really big ones, but I've also seen really little minute ones that you wouldn't think anybody would care to hold a record there, but they do. So what's the most favorite record you have broken so far? Uh, chewing the most bubble gum at once. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, <laughs> exactly, that's, one, that's what I'm that's saying. one of the funny things about records is, as you just said, there's the goofiest ones in the world, most rubber bands together. Uh, but for me, I would say, you know, it's really tough to determine one from the other. I, as you mentioned, have 11. Some of them very unique, uh, including one where I hung by my teeth under a helicopter about 260 feet above the ground. Uh, one where I, I took a circus apparatus called the Wheel of Steel, or often known as the Wheel of Death, yep. and uh, hung that over the boardwalk in Atlantic City where I walked on that blindfolded with wind gusts of almost 70 miles per hour, uh, about 280 feet above the boardwalk. And then many of them, of course, because my family history, which you mentioned a minute ago, but dates back to the 1780s. And really, that's when we started walking wires. So I hold the world record for the longest bicycle ride on a wire, the tall, highest bicycle ride on a wire, uh, tallest blindfolded walk, the steepest incline, uh, the eight-person pyramid, and, and of course, many, many more. But to compare one to another is, is, like I said, it's very difficult. They're all special to me for different reasons. Um, you know, I would say the one hanging by my teeth was, was cool because it was really inspired by my grandmother. I was at her house looking at her kitchen wall where she had a picture not many people can say this, that they have a picture of their grandmother hanging by her teeth under a wire about 20 feet above the ground. 
And uh, I saw that and thought, you know, that's really cool, but how do I make it relevant to today's generation and uh, demographics? And that's, that's what I did by hanging it under a helicopter. Wow, that's so cool. And by the way, you come from circus royalty. Your wife comes from circus royalty. So you are a circus royalty family and you have circus royalty children. And that actually personally means a lot to me because I am a huge fan of the circus. And if I wasn't a psychologist, I think in my second life, I would have loved to try to get into the circus arts. In fact, I am a amateur flying trapeze artist, which I picked up several years ago. And um, I I just think that what you guys achieve and what you guys accomplish on a daily basis is just so incomprehensible to most people because it it really is putting your life on the line truly every single day, but that's just your job. That's just an everyday thing. It really is. You know, people don't understand how do you get on a wire above the Grand Canyon or most recently on ABC over an active volcano. The reality is for my family, my great grandfather said it best. He said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. So for my family, we love being on the wire. In fact, when we have uh, family gatherings, we'll get on the wire and have chicken fights down low, of course, but that's sort of our playground. And that, in fact, that's why I started walking wire at 18 months old, because I saw my parents in the backyard playing and I wanted to be a part of it. But, you know, as you mentioned, my wife as well, circus royalty, you mentioned flying trapeze. That's really her family heritage. Uh, the first family to ever do the quadruple somersault on the flying trapeze and, oh. and really perfect it was her uncle and her father performed that for many, many years as well. Uh, but it is, it is a, a cool legacy. And, and I will say my, my wife, actually, that world record that I, that I set hanging by my teeth under a helicopter was broke by my wife, actually, where she hung about 360 <laughs> feet under a helicopter by, by her teeth over Niagara Falls five year on the five year anniversary of my walk. So uh, she has a couple Guinness World Records as well and uh, is an amazing athlete, amazing aerialist, amazing performer. Uh, but you almost have to have someone like that in your family or marry uh, someone like that when you do what we do. Because, you know, when I look at my wife and say, hey, I'm going to walk a wire over an active volcano, she doesn't say absolutely not or, yeah. or become frightened. She, in fact, often encourages it. Sometimes she'll roll her eyes, some of my ideas. Uh, she often rolls her eyes because she knows when I have a dream, I'm going to make it happen. That's just mm-hmm. the way I live my life, no matter what hurdles, no matter what challenges come in the way. In fact, getting permission to walk across Niagara Falls ch- took changing two laws in two countries, one in the United States and one in Canada that were over 100 years old, uh, to get changed. In fact, there's legislation in the state of New York that allows me, gives me an exemption. Basically, I'm allowed to break that law. Uh, it, is, it was a monumental task, but it was a dream of mine and, and nothing was going to stop me. So again, but it is awesome to have an amazing wife and and family that supports my crazy dreams. Absolutely. And for people who haven't watched Nick's videos, you have to just Google his name and you will see everything that leads up to the walk itself is also a feat to be beheld because I was looking at how long the rig has to be. Just for example, in the walk that you did with your sister in New York City above Times Square. It was something like four to five football fields long. And the wire itself is maybe an inch across. And so I don't even know what goes into the rigging of that and how long it takes. And obviously you secure all of your own rigs. You make sure everything is perfect before you take a step. So I don't, I don't know. Even that process is mind blowing to me. It is. You know, that's a big part of it. In fact, I am just as passionate about the rigging, as passionate about the permitting process as I am about walking that wire. I enjoy every aspect of what I do. And I would tell you that that walk over New York City over Times Square took, uh, it was a, a greater challenge getting permission to do that than changing two laws in two countries. It was that difficult to get the city to agree and to allow us to do that. A monumental task. I mean, we had to shut down Times Square. They don't shut down Times Square for anything other than New Year's. 
And uh, we were able to shut it down for actually three nights in order to get that wire rigged. Uh, it is it is a challenge. I believe there was about uh, 15 miles of cable by the time we stabilized that wire going to different skyscrapers and rooftops along the pathway there from one end to the other. So it is it is a lot to, to, to overcome, a lot of challenges. Again, I couldn't do what I do without my incredible team. When you watch a TV special, you see Nick will end on the wire. You'll see a little bit of backstory, but the reality is if that wire didn't get rigged, if it wasn't engineered by my uncle, if it wasn't my one of my best friends doing all the lead engineering or rigging, I should say, and my father overseeing all the safety, I wouldn't be able to do these walks. So just like any business or anything in life, it takes a team of great people surrounding yourselves in order to accomplish these dreams. And I'm very blessed with a great team. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. I want to talk about your team and your family and your community because really you didn't start wirewalking at the age of one and a half. You started wirewalking when you were in the womb because your mother, when she was six months pregnant with you, was still wirewalking. And this is exactly why you do need to marry people who understand your life, right? Because anybody else would hear that and say, that's crazy. But for your mom, that's normal. I mean, it's just like anybody going to work when they're six months pregnant. They're still working most of the time if they're not on bed rest. That was her job. That's right. Yeah, it was her job and it was her life and it was her passion. It's what she loved to do. So she did. She continued to walk the wire till she was six months pregnant with me. So in theory, I've been walking a wire longer than my feet have touched the ground. But, yes. um, but I have an amazing mom, an amazing performer and aerialist that has, in fact, she just turned 67. Don't tell her that I told you that. But uh, she did a walk with me in Tampa, Florida, between a couple skyscrapers just uh, this year, earlier this year, we were about 150 feet up and she actually sat down on that wire and I stepped over, similar to what me and my sister did uh, in Times Square. However, we didn't have any safeties on. Being that we were in Times right. Square uh, and my network partner being ABC, New York has laws, so we had to wear safeties for that walk. But for this walk in Tampa with my mom at 67 years old, we did a walk without safeties over 100 feet above the ground between these skyscrapers. Wow. And that walk was very significant because, again, we've talked about you coming from a generation of circus performers and specifically aerialists and wire walkers. And your great grandfather, Carl, he actually died in 1978 on that same stretch, I believe. Right. And you guys yeah, were actually so that doing was, that, that walk. Was a walk. We did earlier. We did that about in 2011, actually. But that mm. was another walk that I did with my mom. My great grandfather was walking between two skyscrapers. He was 73 years old in San Juan, Puerto Rico, again, back in 1978. And as he made his way out on that wire, uh, the wire was rigged improperly. So that wire moved mm -hmm. a lot under his feet, which led to him having to do what we all have been taught, which is that that wire is our safety net. We're able to go down and hold on that wire and wait for help. Worst case, we can slide down, uh, slide down our stabilizer ropes often. Uh, but my great-grandfather was 73 years old. And after doing a bunch of studies, there it was film that we, we did studies with uh, geriatrics doctors who really studied that film closely for a Discovery Channel special that I did. And they believe that he probably, um, being that he was 73, uh, your heart starts to swell as you get older. And the amount of blood, because of the adrenaline, the amount of blood that was rushing through his heart, probably caused him to go into cardiac arrest. And really, that's what ended up 
uh, causing him to lose his life. But the walk you were just talking about was was probably the most significant walk. And, and, and if people often ask, what's your favorite walk? It's hard to tell you what my favorite walk is, but the definitely the most uh, emotional one and the most important one to me was being able to recreate the walk that took my great grandfather's life. How did it feel doing that? Was there any you know, even kind of the trauma of hearing about your great grandfather's story as you were preparing for this, or did it feel very just monumental in a positive way? Like we're going to conquer this in his name. I mean, what was it like for you? No, it was extremely emotional. You know, uh, for one, it was again, a huge challenge to get the exact same hotel to give us permission to recreate a walk where as with law legal, you know, issues these days and, and lawyers everywhere, it was very hard to convince them to allow us to do it. But, um, you know, it was it was it was very very surreal. It was very emotional. Um, it was actually raining that day, so it was somewhat somber, oh. um, which kind of set the tone, if you will. But I will tell you that um, as I was getting ready to get on that cable, I did an interview with a reporter on the sidewalk, and it was the exact same reporter that interviewed my great grandfather on that same sidewalk before he went up and lost his life. And, oh. and I get chills as I tell you that story. So. It was, there has been so many parallels in my life and my great grandfather's life. In fact, this book that I wrote is, it talks about one of those parallels that, that changed my life for sure. But, um, there are so many parallels and that was just one where I felt like I literally was in, in the shoes of my hero. I was born in 1979, a year, less than a year after he died. So that was my legacy that I inherited, but I never got to meet this, this man who built this worldwide brand, uh, by performing in the circus, really. And, uh, and then taking it to new heights. And he's been my inspiration through life. And, you know, people often ask me if there's one person you could meet, who would it be? Well, it'd be my great grandfather because he has inspired me to do what I do and continue to push further and continue to inspire people. That's what my family have done for over 200 years. They have lived by the words, the show must go on. I've adapted them to never give up, but it's the same thing. No matter what challenge we face, my great grandfather, there was a bad accident in 1962 where the seven person pyramid he was performing in Detroit, Michigan, collapsed. Two of my uncles were killed. One was paralyzed from the waist down. My great-grandfather snuck out of the hospital and performed the next day against the doctor's orders. Living by those words, the show must go on. I've walked the wire with a fractured ankle for weeks. I have uh, held pyramids with that fractured ankle. I have been through uh, some of the toughest challenges, never canceled a performance in my entire career, Uh, really only postponed a couple and really by 20 minutes because lightning was in the area. But no matter what the challenges uh, that I face, I have learned through family history and through the inspiration of my great-grandfather that as long as we train and prepare properly, uh, that we can do this successfully. Again, what have we learned? We learned that my great-grandfather lost his life because of several reasons. And because of that, you probably won't see Nick Valenda walking wire between two skyscrapers at 73 years old. Just, Just the reality. Although I admire him greatly, the reality is he probably shouldn't have been on the wire. He was in great shape. Uh, but he also had injuries that led up to that. Wire was rigged properly. So, so we've learned from our past family experiences. But again, what we do is very dangerous. And just because he's 73 and I'm only 41 doesn't mean that I couldn't lose my life on a wire either. Uh, but this is my passion. It's my family's passion. It was his passion. My great-grandfather often said, if, if I'm going to go, I want to go from the wire. This is, this is how I want to live and this is how I want to die. And that, yeah. was, that was what he wanted. He didn't yeah. want to die in a, in a bed, you know, uh, or having to walk around with a walker. That's how he wanted to go. I don't necessarily share that same sentiment as him. Um, <laughs> I don't plan on no. or, or want to die on the wire. I, uh, I, I want to die in a nursing home, maybe next to my wife at 102 years old, laying in bed. But um, certainly, certainly not, not my, my vision. But again, there are a lot of parallels in our lives. There really 
are. And I also was so struck by the story. Well, first of all, like you were saying, you work with your family. So um, your uncle rigs your wires for you. Um, you actually attempted multi-person uh, walks across the wire with your family members. And of course, there was a huge tragedy that happened that also parallels what you were just talking about with your great-grandfather, which is the eight-person pyramid collapse during a rehearsal when you were getting ready to break yet another record. And in that particular event, your sister got extremely injured. And yet a couple of days later, you did get back on the wire. You went right away and the show must go on and you made that decision to get right back on. But I want you to talk about that a little bit because I think for most people, they would hear that. I mean, even hearing the stories of your family legacy, they may say, huh, maybe I won't be a wire walker after all. But then, you know, that wasn't your course. You you stayed the course. And then something like that actually personal happens to you. Yeah. And you still got back on. And in fact, your sister got back on too. And you guys got to do that very victorious walk across Times Square together, which I just thought was beautiful. Yeah. So we were training to uh, break a world record. In fact, we had the world record, but it was done at about 21 feet above the ground. And it was a four layer, eight person pyramid on the wire. So we trained for about six to seven weeks. And we start down low always. So we start about two feet off the ground, then we go up 10 feet, then 15, and then we go to whatever height we're going to. So we'd made it through all of those layers and we'd set up the wire at 28 feet, which is going to be for the world record. And uh, we rehearsed one night and it went okay. It didn't go great. It never does the first time. There's a lot of nerves. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety that goes into this. It is real. It is life or death. It is seven or eight people t attached to each other, trusting each other uh, with their with their lives. And uh, so we came back the next day and said, all right, we did one. We made it safely. Let's call it a night, come back the following day and rehearse again. So we came back the following afternoon, got on the wire, and everything seemed fine. I always check with each individual in that pyramid and make sure I make eye contact with them and make sure that they're there, they're with us, they're in the moment, and that they're confident. And uh, so I did that with everybody. Everybody was good. Everybody gave me a thumbs up. And I said, all right, let's do this. So we formed that pyramid, started to make our way out. And I was on the bottom in the back of that pyramid, which is my position, uh, calling the shots and sort of overseeing all of that. And uh, we made it about 10 feet out. I was 10 feet out from the platform. And mm. my biggest nightmare became a reality. That pyramid collapsed. Um, by the grace of God, I caught the wire. My cousin caught the wire. One of our other teammates stayed standing, but five of my family members fell um, mm. and were injured in different capacities. My aunt was at the very top. Uh, if my feet were at 28 feet, she was on the fourth layer. So she was at about uh, shoulders, about 15 feet. So she was at about 45, 50 feet almost with her head. Mm. The, the chances of living, statistics say, are about 25 to 30% from falling from that height. We had five people fall from that height. So everybody was injured, some of them more severe than others. But my sister had fallen and, and fell onto her head. Mm -hmm. uh, not obviously you don't want to fall from that height and land on your legs or on your hip or on your back, but to land on your head, it's very, very bad, of course. Uh, so long story short, rushed to the hospital. My entire team was, and, um, very, very, uh, strange time. I mean, I remember having flashbacks of, of the stories that have whole, I've heard the, the movie that was on NBC of my family and that kind of reenacted that accident, but never thought, always knew it was a possibility, but never thought it'd become a reality. And here it became a reality. Uh, so my sister is, is injured bad, broke in the end, broke every bone in her face, broke her hip, broke her arm, uh, and broke her leg, her calcaneus. Uh, she has currently 73 screws and plates in her face alone. That's just how bad it was. Uh, immediately went into, uh, an acoma and, uh, was in a coma for several days. And 
I'll never forget being in the waiting room. And I was contracted two days later to perform uh, over an arena. I often do motivational speaking from a wire. So I, I speak to corporations all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. But they'll run, out, they'll run out arenas often. So I'll be 120 feet up and speak to a crowd. And at that point, I wasn't even considering getting back on the wire. Not because of fear, because respect for those that had fallen. There was certainly a lot of survivor's guilt. I felt really bad that I caught the wire and I didn't fall to the ground and would have traded places with any of them, still to this day would trade places with any of them if I could have. Uh, so I was dealing with that. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the waiting room and I remember my dad coming up to me. And, and of course, every, every dad is very protective of their baby girl, their daughter. It's his only yes. daughter. He has one son, me and my, my sister being his daughter. And uh, so I expected my dad to be very bitter and mad at me mm-hmm. uh, because here I am the leader of the troop. And here my sister is, and we don't even know if she's going to survive. And I'll never forget, he came up to me and he said, you know, I know that you have a performance coming up tomorrow. And if you want to do it, if you have intentions of doing it, then I will be there to support you and I'll be right by your side. Again, I get chills as I say that. I can't imagine being in his position. I have a beautiful daughter. And if that happened to her, I could see me being very mad at, at her brother who, who, you know, led her into this. Of course, we all make these decisions on our own. We know the risk we take, but still. Uh, and I'll never forget that. And I remember going, Dad, I, I wasn't even thinking. I wasn't even considering doing that. I was going to cancel it. There's, I, it just didn't even cross my mind. And he said, look, this is the way your family lived. And if your sister was not in a coma, I can promise you she would say she would want you to get on that wire. And immediately I decided, you know what, I'm going to reach out to everybody that's been injured. And that's what I did. I went into their hospital rooms and some of them different capacities. Uh, but I'll, I'll never forget the first gentleman, Andrew. I, I went into his room. He's been, been performing with us for quite some time and, and a close friend. And, and I went to him and I said, Andrew, you know, I don't know what to do. I have a contract to perform tomorrow. I wasn't even considering do it. I, in fact, I'll never get on the wire again if you don't want me to out of respect for you. What do you think I should do? And I remember him just being quiet, sort of shaking his head. And he goes, you know, I think you're crazy. He goes, but the reality is I, I think you need to do it. I think you should get on the wire. And then I went from bed, bed uh, hospital room to hospital room, uh, spoke with the other three members that didn't fall off the wire. And all of them said, look, we're there. We're going to support you. We're going to be right there. Those that weren't in the hospital, the, the, the two that stayed remaining on the wire, uh, one of them that fell, actually two of them that fell, um, were already out of the hospital within a day, which is miraculous in itself. Um, and they said, we'll be there with you. So I went off and performed. Uh, two days after that and went on to perform for another another month. And, uh, you know, the, the analogy of get back on the horse. You have an accident, get back on the horse. You fall off the horse, get back on. Well, it's, you know, I thought the same with the wire. Okay, I fell off the wire. Okay, I'm getting back on and, yep. and everything's great. And uh, and and I'm we're going to overcome this and my sister's going to be okay. And, and I, I'm just a very positive thinker. And even if I don't want to be positive, I force myself to be positive because it's the way I live my life. Yeah. And, um and I remember going on for those that, that next six weeks and then taking some time off. And, and during that time off, I remember um, starting to have these emotions that I never realized were even in my DNA and, and not realizing it. But when that accident happened, there was a seed planted in my head and it was a seed of fear and doubt. And uh, during that time, although I was, I was sort of avoiding it, um, I thought I was facing it by getting on the wire. But the reality is I was just burying it away. And I remember going to see a counselor and, and she, she said to me, look, uh, you know, you really need to deal with this issue. And I remember telling her, well, I have dealt with it. What do you mean? I got back on the wire. Everything's good. I mean, mm-hmm. I, my sister's going to be okay. My family's going to recover. We're, we're going to get back on the wire together. And she said, no, you got to deal with it. And, and I blew it off. I saw her once because it was advised uh, by, by a friend, uh, by actually by one of my pastors, you need to go see a counselor. So I did. And I thought, 
this is, this is crazy. Well, looking back, it wasn't crazy. She was 100% spot on. I just didn't realize what was going on in my mind. So after about six weeks off, we headed to New York City where we were going to headline on Big Apple Circus in New York City, and we were going to do this seven-person pyramid again. But I had to train a new group because several of them were injured. So there were a lot of substitutes. And a long story short, as I began training, I began experiencing this fear like I'd never experienced before. And it became um, overwhelming to the point where it was debilitating, where I was literally trembling as I was on the wire. And uh, I remember uh, going back to my, my apartment and telling my wife, I'm done. I can't walk the wire anymore. And um, I'll never forget her comment. We talked about her history and why she would react this way. But she said, look, I'll support you in whatever decision you make. But your family for over 200 years have lived by the word the show must go on. You say you do everything you do and you have proven it to inspire people that nothing's impossible. And you encourage people to never give up. And you're about to give up. Hmm. It just sort of set a trigger off in my mind. And what I realized was that when that seed was planted, during those six weeks of still being on the wire and that time off, I was watering that seed over and over again. And these thoughts of doubt and fear just kept growing and growing and growing. What I've been taught my whole life is that when you feel a, 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 a mo an emotion of fear, to immediately remove that. So if I'm scared of, of spiders, well, then step away from that spider and you don't have to be scared of it anymore. If I get a gust of wind, for in instance, over the Grand Canyon, 43 mile an hour gusts of wind, Immediately, fear wants to creep in, but I can say, but I've trained in 70 mile, five mile an hour winds. I'm, I'm more than capable of doing this walk and always countering that. So I use the analogy of, of a seed because it's just like a, a, a weed planted in, you know, that grows in your garden as it's growing. If you don't pull that out immediately, it'll take over your whole garden. Well, that's what was happening in my mind. It became this storm and this battle in my mind, and I was losing the battle for the first time in my life. Um, and it became the greatest challenge of my career, harder than changing two laws in two countries or getting permission to walk mm. across Times Square or or, or, you know, doing all of these walks and these world records, this became the greatest battle. And, and I remember sitting there and going, man, God, why am I going through this? What, what is the purpose of this? But I believe that every situation we can go through can either be used for good or bad. And I am very, very strong believer and we can make good things. Good things can come from bad situations and that you can't get to the peak until you go through, through the valley. And I remember sitting there and going, you know what, I'm going through this for a reason. And if I can go through this, I can encourage other people that they'll make it through. And, and that's, what, that's what inspired me. This is my second book. My first book was really just about my life and, and who I am and, and sort of Niagara Falls and, and what had happened in my career up until then. But, and I didn't have a desire to write another book. But when I went through this, I was like, man, I went through this for a purpose. And if I can change one life, if I can encourage that one person who's scared to, who, who's scared to pursue their dreams, who goes to work every week because they get a paycheck on Friday, but they're miserable and they're not pursuing their dreams simultaneously then guess what? It's worth it. So that's when I started writing this book. And that's, uh, that's what led me to, to where I am today. Well, I really appreciate you being so open about this process in your life, where basically you recognize that there's two kinds of fears. And I love talking about this with you because I wrote a book last year. It was called Self-Sabotage. And it's all about how fear traps us from living our best lives. But that fear is a universal emotion. It's adaptive in many ways. But then there's this maladaptive fear. And you kind of talk about it with different terminology, but it's the same idea where there's experiential fear, which is actually going to keep you alive and help yeah. you to thrive. Then there's that emotional fear that you're talking about, the part that after this big accident, you sort of try to stuff that part away. You, of course, you got back on the wire. You were doing great with the experiential fears still. You know, you were still walking the wire and doing all of these things. But the emotional fear was taking root 
and you weren't clearing out the weeds. It was growing over time. And for the first time, you had to contend with this other X factor that in the past you either maybe didn't acknowledge or maybe just not until this point did it really come to the forefront as something that you really needed to deal with. And I think it's so interesting, right? Because we talk about fears and everybody has fears and people are listening to you right now and they're thinking, well, I could never do what Nick Walenda does. But fear is universal for everyone. We all have different types of experiential versus emotional fears that we're all dealing with. So if your emotional fear is holding you back, like you said, just from going for that relationship that you know is good for you, or finally getting that job that you know is going to excite you, this is going to be a great book for you to read because not only do you tell your story and you're a very good storyteller, you also get into guidance, tips, and advice. And one of the ones that I love the most is how much do you focused on music and how music soothes fears. So I'm a musician. I've been playing music since I was four. I've been singing in the church choir since I was seven. And I love how you talked about the fact that when you're walking the wire, you listen to worship music and it actually calms you down. And I love that idea of being on a wire and that being your peaceful place. But I do think that music helps you to connect to a mindful space. And that's how I feel even as an amateur flying trapeze artist. Like I can't tell you how much I struggle with mindfulness practice, but I never struggle with it if I'm doing a flying trapeze rehearsal or act because you got to be mindful or else. I mean, there literally, literally is no future or past when you're on a rig like that. Your sister just, just isn't, you know? Yeah. Look, I, I love music. Music is so powerful. I mean, it can change your mood. In fact, you know, with my children growing up, I was very, very adamant about watching music that they listen to because I believe that you can listen to life or you can listen to death. Uh, and, and it's all in the words that you're feeding into your mind. Look, the reality is if you, if you are told a lie, uh, in fact, uh, I was, I was reading, uh, some chronicles and it was on, um, it was on uh, Hitler, and it was on the the the, the um, one of his lead men who actually led uh, the Jews to the trains, who were eventually led off for for slaughter. And um, and he said they said uh, well how it was the trials, and and they said well how did you convince them to do this? And he said well I, I just continued to tell them lies until they started believing that they were true. And the reality is we can feed, which which shows how powerful it is when you hear something enough, you start to believe it. So I am very mindful about what I allow. And again, was with my children, what I allow into my mind. And I like to make sure that it's positive. Yeah, there might be other music that, that, uh, that is awesome. But if it's speaking negativity uh, in general, I just don't allow that in my life. In fact, I'm even careful. I don't even watch news. The only thing I'll do these days is I'll read news. Yes. I want to stay informed. I want to be smart about it. But if I'm listening to, unfortunately, news is all negative. I don't care where you are politically. Let's leave that out of it. It's all about negativity, 99% of it. In fact, I get, I, I'm all the time going, going to uh, the news, news outlets and saying, look, I have a positive message. And they'll say, well, we have to bump it because there's this, this, there was a shooting. Like, guys, we need more positivity in this world, not in the negativity. And so I'm very careful, again, even when it comes to news and it comes to music, what I allow into my mind. But, but music can literally change my mood. Yes. Um, and, and the reality is, uh, it, I tell people, in, in, in another example, is, is just the people that you surround yourself with. You know, mm -hmm. Surround yourself with people that are positive. Yeah, there's always going to be a few negative people. Some of them might be family members. Um, trust me, I know that very, very well. So, but I try to put up a border even with my family members. Now, I still love them. I still care for them. I still talk to them. I still spend time with them. But I also have my guard up because if you spend time around somebody enough, 
you will become like that person. You know, I tell my kids all the time, you can judge a man by his friends. And the reality is that's very, very true. So be careful who your friends are. I've continued my entire life surrounding myself with people that are positive and people that are, that are more skilled than me, people that are smarter than me. And that is why I've gotten to where I am in my life. The circus industry as a whole was, 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 going by the wayside. Look, Ringling Brothers shut down. My mom wrote a book in the 80s called The Last of the Walendas. She didn't think there was a future. In fact, so much so that she pushed me off to college and said, I don't even want you doing this anymore, uh, carrying on this industry. So she felt like it was over. But the reason why I've been blessed and brought to the level that I have is because I surrounded myself with people that were some that were outside of the industry and then the very successful ones that were in the industry and learned from them and surrounded myself with people like David Blaine and Chris Angel and David Copperfield and, and, and Robbie Knievel. And my great grandfather was great friends with Evil Knievel and looked to my great grandfather for inspiration, people that really did big things. And that was really, that's why my career has gotten to where, where, where it is because again, of not allowing that negativity and being careful. There's mornings where I wake up miserable and I will force myself to smile immediately. No matter what my mood is or attitude, I make myself smile. Uh, I don't know why we wake up in those moods. I don't know why our minds often are set to negativity or prone to go that direction. Uh, but but I struggle with it just like anyone else. And like I told you earlier, I'm not necessarily the most uh, always, I haven't always been the most positive person, but I constantly make myself, no, you know what? If you don't feel like being positive, I don't care. You need to be positive anyway. If you don't feel like smiling, smile anywhere. It's, anyway, it's amazing how just forcing a smile on your face, there's something, endorphins that are released that will actually change our mood often. Um, you know, and, and I look, I see so many, so many people struggling, so many people hurting, so many people struggling with fear right now. And my heart goes out to those people. And, and my prayer is that through this book and, and really just through life, that they will learn to stop, uh, stop listening to the negativity, stop, stop feeding negativity in and surround themselves with the right uplifting people. And they'll be able to overcome whatever challenge they're facing. You really do have to put up healthy boundaries and really guard your heart and your mind and what you're exposing yourself to. I love all the tips that you talked about. There actually is scientific evidence for what you said about acting as if, you know, if you're not feeling right, go ahead and force a smile because that actually causes neurotransmitter changes that then lifts your mood. Music absolutely shifts our mood. And because of the synchronicity of music and heartbeats and everything else, we just feel more at peace. We just feel more um, one with the world in many, many ways. And certainly when there's so much negativity on TV, I'm just like you, Nick. I only read the news right now. And I also set a limit on how long I read the news because you know you can just keep Googling and going down a subreddit. And before you know it, you've been doing that for three hours. And so I really set a 30-minute time limit, maybe one hour tops every single day so I can stay informed but not watch television because, it, I mean, I only watch, you know, circus shows and uh, magic shows and also like comedies on television right now. Like that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's funny. Cause I used to be the person on the other end of the screen, rolling my eyes when I heard this stuff. Oh, make yourself yeah. smile. Come on. That's so stupid. Make yourself smile, <laughs> make, make yourself positive, stay positive. I used to be that person. And then I started living it and went, wow, this is real. It's true. And I saw my life change and progress as I grew up through that. Uh, but it's something that I have to practice continually. When I get in an argument with my wife, for some reason, our minds are prone to go to every negative situation we've ever had with that person, not to the 500 incredible dates that we've had and the 20 years we've been married, always to the negative. Our minds are prone. So I've started practicing in every aspect of my life. No, I'm not going to allow my mind to go there. Nope. When I get in an argument, I start thinking about the incredible vacation and the, our honeymoon and, and the times, you know, the incredible times that we've had. So I won't even allow my mind to go there in an argument anymore. 
And the more that you practice it, and you have to continually practice it, the closer you'll get. I don't think you can ever master it, but the closer you'll get to that. And again, your life will change for the better. And what a great analogy. Just practice for everything. Practice for your career. Practice for positivity. Practice to really live your core values. And that's what I want to talk about as we wrap up is, you know, the fear. It's so gripping right now. You wrote this book in the pandemic. I know that fear is all around us and universal anyway, but especially right now, everybody is contending with fear and particularly one very universal fear, which is fear of the unknown. There's just so much that we don't know right now. And you can be fearing issues of health, issues of finance, which I know you talked about in your book. We just never know what's coming around the corner, but especially right now, we don't know. And I love what you said in the book that, you know, humans are limited to what we can touch and experience. It's true. That's just the way our mind works. We deal better in the concrete. So anything that we can't put our hands on, our imaginations can sometimes do its worst work. Yeah. And you can go to like the biggest disasters in your head and you're still actually in this present moment fine, but in your head, you're just thinking, my life is going to come apart. Do you ever feel like your own fear of the unknown and how you've combated it? Because you talked about it more in terms of finances because you know your, oh. your work is built on this career and it's all about one-upping yourself. I mean, at this point, you're beating your own records. That's basically what you're doing. So does it ever make you feel like you have to put yourself in even more danger to, to make sure that the finances, the part of the fear that's about the finances is satisfied? Or how do you manage that? Yeah. So one of the bo- uh, chapters in this, this latest book is called Fear of Feathers. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I wrote that chapter was my great-grandfather in his book that he wrote in the 70s, uh, he talked about being in the circus or really in live entertainment as a whole, being an actor as uh, one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers. And uh, that's true in our world. That's why we see, we know the word, the starving artist, right? I mean, that's yes. just the way it is. So I was raised in an industry that was dying, financially struggling. My parents went through a lot of financial struggles, but still loved what they were doing. So didn't want to stop doing it and, and tried to subsidize it by waiting tables, by working at home. Um, and so I was raised around that fear of finances. Am I going to be able to pay my bills? Am I going to be able to support a family? My mom wrote that book, The Last of the Willendas. You need to go off to college and do something else because you're not going to be able to support a family. So that is something that is generational. It's been going on for a long time. And, and uh, it was, it's something that, that, that is very real in my life. Uh, you know, my friends make fun of me. I live very frugally. I, uh, I don't waste money. I have, don't owe anything on anything that I own. I live debt free. I just, I don't want to have that fear and continually uh, will save, 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 save. And, and I, my best friend, in fact, is always like, uh, you can't take it when you die. I'm like, yeah, but my kids can use it then. That's okay if I die early. But um, so, so look, I, I certainly have adjusted my life because, you know, accordingly, uh, what I would tell you is I have tried to diversify. I have, uh, you know, rental properties. I've just recently opened another business. Um, getting ready to, to make a big announcement in the circus world, which I'm extremely excited about. This pandemic has sort of slowed that down. But again, because of that, it's not as though I'm fearful. I know that we will come up with, with something that will, um, you know, that will subsidize what we're dealing with, that will we'll deal with this pandemic, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, some medicine, I don't know what, there's going to be a way we're going to figure something out. We are an amazing uh, world and it is the whole world that's going through this. We'll, we'll find We'll find uh, something to fix it. But um, so I'm, I don't focus on that. I focus on, so I'm still, still moving forward with that dream of, of this, this big announcement that I'm about to make with the circus. But um, I'm always diversifying. I'm always trying to spread and go, okay, well, 
uh, I've made my money uh, on TV and walking on wires, but now I'm going to do a little bit of this. And I own, again, I own several lo local companies locally, but always trying to continue to make up for that fear. But yeah, the fear is real. I talk about it in my book. I talk about healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Uh, you know, I believe that there is healthy fear, and that's the fear that says when you see a rattlesnake and you hear its tail rattling, it's, uh, you, your mind says, back up. That's, that's healthy fear. What, what I, that fear is a fine line between fear and respect, in my opinion. I respect that snake, so I back up. I don't have to be frightened. I don't have to scream. I don't have to turn my back and run. In fact, in fact that's the worst thing you can do uh, if you're facing a wild animal and, and, and about to be attacked. Um, but I also respect that, you know, when I get right. to the edge of a building, I respect the fact when I look down that I could fall. Um, but then there's that unhealthy fear, you know, fear that would say, don't get out on that wire. Well, that's what I was called to do. That's what I made for, uh, fear that would say, don't, don't leave, uh, don't pursue your dreams because you're getting a paycheck every two weeks and you can just settle for that. At least your bills are paid and, and your, you know, your kids are in school and, and everything's fine. Uh, there's that unhealthy fear of saying, hey, you need to be, be in a cage right now and not leave your house and, 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 uh, and not get out. Now, again, I, I tell people, you need to be smart. You need to follow guidelines. You need to wear your mask. You need to respect social distancing. Uh, but you can't come to a point where you can't function in life. We all have right. to live life. We can't, we can't be boxed up in a cage for the rest of our, for our, for the rest of our lives. So, um, you know, I encourage people to, um, to, to try to, try to determine what that fear is, you know, and, and, and level-headedly look at it and go, okay, yes, this is, this is an unhealthy fear. Uh, I should pursue that dream. I think so many people are just on the cusp of success, what they would call success. And because of one more failure, they give up. And, and I talk about that in my book too. You can't have success without failure. Mm -hmm. So don't give up. Don't let that, that fear of, of failure keep you from even pursuing it because you're going to fail. I can't tell you how many times I failed or how many times I fell off the wire in training and practice, but I continued to get back up. Uh, you know, how many, how many times I've opened a business and it, it's, it's not, it's holding on by a thread or, or I have to even subsidize it for months, but then all of a sudden, man, there's that turn uh, and that turn changes it all. So um, again, I, I encourage people to just, in, just determine what is healthy and what is unhealthy and don't give up on your dreams because of that. I believe that we are all created to do more. Uh, we're all capable than more than uh, to do more than what we're doing. And, uh, and that's why I continue. That's what drives me to continue to push myself to do greater things. You know, it's not about, as you mentioned, there, there are very few people I've been blessed to be on a level. And I don't say this arrogantly because I am beyond blessed, but I'm at a level where I have very little, if any competition in what mm -hmm. I do. So it's all about driving myself because I mm -hmm. believe that I'm, I'm still capable of doing greater things. I love everything that you said, because really all of us are going to be dealing with fear and we don't want to let that stop us. And I do think that a huge part of not letting unhealthy fear get a hold of us and so that we can keep moving forward is really sticking to our core values. And I know that you talk about this in your book as well. And I love this beautiful analogy that you made about how basically you have your footing because your wire is secure. You know, the core values are what makes that wire, that, that rig secure. So I know that you talked about your top four values and I felt like our entire interview was filled with those tidbits of perseverance, faith, integrity, and positivity. But what would you say to people who are listening in terms of people who haven't done values-based work? Cause you know, our society is so based on goals, goals, goals all the time. Values is kind of a different language. So what is the importance of values to you? And how would you talk about that to people who are just trying to get started? Yeah. So, uh, you know, values are so important. Um, 
You know, I believe uh, I believe in uh, integrity, and I believe that is it is probably the most important value. I am a man of my word. Mm-hmm. If I say I'm going to perform, I talked about it earlier in this interview. But if I'm going to perform, say I'm I'm going to perform somewhere, I'm going to perform there. Uh, fractured ankle, um, sick. In fact, the morning of the Grand Canyon walk, I was very very ill. Uh, but I gave my word that I was going to perform and I was going to do it no matter what. So integrity, you know, uh, has led me again to where I am. I have a, I can tell you that anyone in the industry, I, I can't imagine anyone being able to say anything bad about me in the TV world or anybody that I've worked with in the past, because I have always maintained a high level of integrity. Uh, my word is my word. And, and, and that is very valuable, especially when it comes to business, because people talk. And um, yeah. I can tell you that my career has progressed because of people that I've worked with. You never know. I, I say this to my kids too all the time. Um, you never know if the guy sweeping the floor is one day going to be your boss. And there's a good yeah. chance that he will be. Uh, <laughs> so you need to treat everybody that way. And even if he's not, you still need to treat him that way. Yes. Um, you know, I am I'm a very strong believer in doing everything to the best of my ability. And there were times where I was that starving artist working in a restaurant. And Mm -hmm. I can promise you that at 15 years old, I started bussing tables. At 21, I was the general manager of the restaurant because I believe that if we work hard enough, I tell my kids this too, if you can uh, make your boss's job where he doesn't even have to show up, eventually you're going to be the boss because he sees that uh, and he'll either get replaced by you or he will say, look, uh, you know, you need to be promoted. There's another opportunity here, et cetera, et cetera. And that was my life. So whether it was sweeping the floors or washing the baseboards, which I scrubbed all the time, I did it to the best of my ability and it paid off. Uh, so I encourage people to, to work as hard as you possibly can, whether anybody's looking or not, whether you're making $5 an hour or $50 an hour, because I promise you, if you work as hard as you possibly can and to the best of your ability on good days and bad days, if you're making $5 an hour, one day you will be making $50 an hour because that does not go unnoticed. So, um, you know, those are, those are the values that I've stuck with in life. And I believe that is why, look, I have 16 family members that continually continue to walk the wire. We've done this for over 200 years. But if you ask the world, who do you know? It's Nick Walenda. And the reality is all of my family are great wire walkers. I admire them. I love them. Uh, but I just have this drive and this, this, this ethic, this work ethic that compares to very few. Uh, I don't know why I was blessed with that. Because again, I would tell you some of my family members are better wire walkers than me even. But I just have this drive and this will and this desire. And I won't give up no matter what. I have these dreams and I'm going to pursue them no matter what comes against me. And I think that that type of commitment to your values is really what gives you that confidence and that self-esteem and just believing in yourself that causes you to be able to have, like you said, the superhuman motivation and to be able to keep charging forward no matter what adversities you face. Everybody who's listening needs to pick up a copy of your book. It is so timely, so wonderful, great stories and great advice. Nick, where can people find out more about you? They can go to nickwalenda.com. It's just N-I-K-Walenda.com. Or uh, they can also go, any social media handle is all, it's all Nick Walenda. And of course, they can pick up a copy of the book at any online retailer or at nickwalenda.com if they want an autographed copy. Definitely pick up a copy of Facing Fear today. I really enjoyed reading it. And it has been such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit today, Nick. And I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me.
Wow, you guys, that was an action-packed episode with Nick Walenda. I would not have expected anything less. This man has done such superhuman things, and he was just such a joy to talk to. And I think he really gave us a really great playbook on how to deal with fears, particularly the unhealthy fears that we all experience. So if you want to reach goals in your life, here are the supercharged secrets to overcoming fear. First, take an attitude of curiosity about your fear. Why do you fear this thing? Don't be afraid to dig deep and find out what's underneath because that acknowledgement is going to be the way that you start to overcome and heal from your fear. The second supercharged secret is to sit with your fear, allow the discomfort to build because eventually it goes away. I know that sounds scary, but fear does decrease if you allow yourself to sit with that discomforting feeling because there is this amazing process of the human brain called habituation. So after a while of feeling uncomfortable, it is going to go away. And you can speed that up by doing some deep breathing while you're confronting your fear, but definitely don't give up and just sit with it and you will see how powerful habituation is. The third tip is to use a laddering approach. So start with a smaller fear, take some steps towards confronting it, then move towards your bigger fears. Nick talked about this all the time in terms of how he rehearses, right? So they start with the wire two feet above the ground, then four feet, then eight feet, then all the way up to 28 feet. And that's how we should confront our fears too. You don't have to do it all at once. Start small and keep making gradual progress. The fourth tip is to hone your intuition about what fears are adaptive versus the ones that are holding you back healthy versus unhealthy fears. When you notice that your brain is overreacting to something or going into hyperdrive, just say thank you to your mind because your mind is trying to protect you, but maybe it's going overboard, kind of like that overprotective parent. So start to hone that intuition about, is this fear really adaptive for me? Or is this just my mind going on overdrive and I just need to tell it to calm down? Thank you for trying, but I don't need you right now. And finally, the last supercharged secret is to use visualization. This is a form of mental practice. And by the way, Nick does talk about this in his book too. And I'm such a fan of visualization. So visualize yourself overcoming your fears. Your brain actually locks that in as if it's happening. And so when the real thing is in front of you, you're more likely to overcome it too. Don't believe me? Try visualization for yourself or just Google visualization and success. There's so many articles that you can read about this. It's true science and I would love for you to put it into practice. Well, thank you so much for listening to this action-packed episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho on social media. And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends and take a moment to leave a review because it will mean very much to me. I'm Dr. Judy and remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.